episode 45 46 something like that of behind the lens welcome uh i'm debbie lynn elias movie shark de bloor movie shark um for all of our new listeners out and viewers out there welcome behind the lens we do just that we go behind the lens and below the line on film television even some music once in a while as our past shows will demonstrate with talent like jake simpson chris mulkey and a few other guys um so, normal, once in a while we have a co-host, Greg Srizavazdi. Greg is working on another project right now, which is why he has not been with us, but he will be rejoining us before the end of the year. Also, our good friend here behind the lens, Kendra Montagna, will be co sitting in and co-hosting uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, because she wants to get artsy and craftsy about movies. So, but today... As you all know, we are in the midst of award season. It has officially started, and there are some really big front runners out there. We're going to hear some of my exclusive interviews with the writer and director, John McNamara, writer, Jay Roach, director of Trumbo, a very powerful film. It assures an Oscar nomination, if not a win, for Brian Cranston uh, as Dalton Trumbo, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit more in a few minutes. Joining me today will be, in the first segment of the show, filmmaker and reality TV producer Trevor Byrell uh, will be with us. Trevor has a very interesting story. I've known Trevor for a number of years. He is a dear friend. Um, he has been a reality TV producer for some time. Uh, currently, he's one of the producers of the Emmy-nominated Wahlburgers. Uh, but... On a very personal level, Trevor experienced uh, illness in his family, illness that is genetic, and embarked on a journey to discover his own journey uh, of discovery about the disease, about the propensity for what might happen to him, if in fact he even has it, and put together a documentary called One in a Million, a CJD Documentary. First film festival he was in was Laughlin Film Festival, and he won the Humanitarian Award. Uh, the film has appeared in several other festivals around the country, and I believe down at Turks and Caicos, but we'll, we'll double-check that with Trevor when he calls in. So Trevor will be joining us, going to fill us in on what's been going on with uh, One in a Million uh, in terms of distribution, where what the plans are to take it elsewhere. And also we'll find out what it's like producing a reality show with the Wahlbergs. Um, then a real, a real treat is a 25-year-old young filmmaker, his first uh, feature, wrote and directed, called Superior. Ed Benda is joining us. Ed has been on, uh, he's another one who's been on a remarkable journey. Uh, I first met him earlier in the year at Dances with Films Film Festival where Superior played. Um, he has been on a whirlwind with the Fest circuit since then. 
I think his festival circuit ends finally. The final screening is going to be tonight in his hometown. Uh, so we're going to hear from Ed about the experience of making Superior a nostalgic, wistful look back uh, that will touch everybody and remind them of those long, long ago days of your childhood. Uh, so some wonderful, wonderful guys joining me today. But first, as I said, you know, let's talk a little Trumbo. For those of you that don't know who Dalton Trumbo is, and I mentioned this last week uh, as well, Dalton Trumbo was one of the Hollywood Ten. The Hollywood Ten, uh, they were part of the witch hunt that went on during the McCarthy era, uh, the Red Scare, and spearheaded in Hollywood essentially by gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Uh, the Hollywood Ten were made examples of because they would not kiss and tell about their Communist Party affiliation or their friends or acquaintances and who all might be involved uh, that was going to decimate the entire Hollywood industry and this country. Um, and Dalton Trumbo was one of, one of the ten, uh, perhaps the most famous of the ten, uh, during his blacklisting, as everybody was, uh, he wrote this little film called A Rome, Roman Holiday, starring Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck. Only when the Oscar was announced for Best Screenplay, it wasn't Dalton Trumbo's name we heard, it was Ian McClellan Hunter. Hunter was one of Trumbo's best friends, and he submitted the script on Trumbo's behalf using his name in order to get the film made. Um, similarly, Trumbo, during his blacklist days, he also worked for the King Brothers, uh, who were turning out some of the coolest schlocky B-movies. And so if you ever find anything by the King Brothers, see it, see it, see it. Uh, and in Trumbo, Frank King is played by John Goodman, who truly embraces the role and adds a lot of levity to some very serious subject matter. But while we're writing for Frank King under assume names, as were all of his other friends, um, to keep the B, the B machine going. The Brave One, it also went on to win an Academy Award. Um, unfortunately, not with Trumbo's name on it. But then along came some guy named Kirk Douglas. You know, has been, wannabe. Uh, he was getting ready to film this little film called Spartacus. He wanted Dalton Trumbo. And he wanted Dalton Trumbo to write this screenplay as Dalton Trumbo. Kirk Douglas held out. Dalton Trumbo's name appeared on the credits. And that, in effect, helped break the blacklisting. And it helped restore Dalton Trumbo's rights um, and accolades as a screenwriter. And following Douglas, Otto Preminger stepped in with Exodus in a very similar fashion. Um, Dalton Trumbo, quite honestly, was more American than most Americans were then and are now. So to see this film, it's so well done. The script is written by John McNamara. It is based on this book which, uh, by Bruce Cook, which came out in 1977. I was very fortunate that back in 1977, I had a film, uh, film history professor, Tim Lyons, who was one of the foremost authorities on Charlie Chaplin, but loved film history. And this book became part of our curriculum 
uh, once it came out because he was so passionate that everybody understand the history of Dalton Trumbo. And I am forever grateful to him for that. And uh, you'll hear a little bit later as Jay Roach and I talk about the book and about his introduction and experience to Dalton Trumbo and the Hollywood Ten. But first, since Dalton Trumbo starts with pen and paper, let's start with screenwriter John McNamara. I sat down with John to talk about this Oscar-worthy script from start to finish. And I asked him about the cinematic history, larger-than-life characters, political aspect, but more importantly than that, Dalton Trumbo is a man. How do you make all that come together? You've got the cinematic history with larger-than-life characters. Uh-huh. You've got the, po- the political aspect, uh-huh. and then you have the family aspect. How did you find a way in to meld the three of those with the balance that you have achieved? The political stuff, is, for me, all of just research. Just tons and tons and tons of reading. Same with the Lords of the Life, the historical, cinematic, political characters. But the family, I give almost all credit to Jay Roach, Nikki Trumbo, and Mr. Trumbo. They were amazing at continually digging and mining, especially the sisters, were incredible. Mm-hmm. They were so giving and so honest and so um, unwilling to take the easy way out, mm-hmm. you know? And they showed me the truth about who their dad was and what it was like to be their child, their, mm-hmm. his, you know, his children. Um, that's really, it really was years of research and then years of spending time with them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we kind of get the balance, I think. Mm-hmm. Was it challenging to find that balance? Because this story is so powerful. You could have just dealt with the Hollywood aspect. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. the political aspect. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to mine yeah. with that. I sort of felt early on, even before meeting the sisters when there was an early draft of the script, that I wanted the movie to have as wide an appeal as possible. And I think everyone has a family. And and this family was affected in ways that are very specific but very easy to relate to Mm -hmm. for anyone with a family, children, parents, whatever. And... I really thought that if it was just political, it would be dry, and if it was just family, it might be melodramatic. <laughs> but that the two together, in the right proportion, would might yield a movie that, that would feel um, broad-based and sort of interesting uh-huh. to a lot of different people. I wanted my mom to like it. I wanted my sister to like it. I wanted my, my Hollywood friends to like it. I wanted my wife to like it, you know? And so it meant really looking at as many aspects of his life as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was the thing. So we stuck to him as a point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, that helped us really understand who he was as a man, father, husband, writer, political activist. What did you find being a writer yourself? Yeah. Now, this is your first feature film, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. What was the learning curve like for you? Steep. <laughs> Steep. <laughs> I once. Um, the first blacklisted writer I ever met was Arthur Lawrence, mm-hmm. the author of The Way We Were. And we, we were in a play festival. We were, he was a director and I was a writer. And when I think about something that Arthur said, I think about myself on Trumbo. He was being interviewed. We were being interviewed together for a, a show. And the interview asked him, this is 1982, what was your experience like writing your first play, mm-hmm. Home of Gray? 
and Arthur heard a famously gravelly Brooklyn voice said, I thought I knew everything, and I knew nothing. <laughs> That's kind of my experience in Columbus. <laughs> I thought I knew everything, and I turned out I knew nothing. And did that help you relate to Trumbo himself? That writer within you? That, you know, it's interesting. He's such an impressive writer. He's such a master, not only of the craft of screenwriting, but of language itself. It was half trying to relate and half being like, who the hell am I to write this guy's story? He's such a good writer, you know? <laughs> well, um, you ain't too shabby yourself um, here. Well... <laughs> But I think that, I think he may have been a genius. He may have been a genius. I, I, think, I think time will sort of tell in the long run how many of his movies and books stand the test of time in 50 or 100 years. But certainly, anyone who can write um, Johnny Got His Gun, Roman Holiday, and Spartacus is a brilliant writer. And then all those incredible letters. So I felt a kinship in one way. My, my, my wife thinks that Trumbo is a kind of idealized version of myself. And I think that's probably not incorrect. I would love to be as brave, as prolific, as talented, um, as cantankerous, uh, as combative, as brilliant, but I'm not. So I wrote about a guy who was. If you ask me, uh, I think that John McNamara is every much the writer that Dalton Trumbo was. And once you see this film... You will, I think you will all agree with that. But before we hear more from John, we're going to hear from the wonderful Trevor Byrell. Hi, Trev. Hello, Debbie. How are you? I am very fine. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Are you hard at work and toiling and slaving on Wahlburgers? Uh, yeah, we're gearing up, getting ready for our January premiere, and... Uh, Busy, busy, busy. So we got some really, really good stuff this season coming up. So, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> that scares me. Oh, we have the Pope. We have amazing NASCAR. We have Mark's directorial debut. We got lots of good stuff. So, Oh, my God. Well, ta- speaking of a directorial debut, you made quite a splash over the past year with your directorial debut with One in a Million, a CJD doc. Yeah, coming off of a, a win at the Austin Revolution Film Festival, which I have to give a, a great shout-out to. They are uh, fantastic and very uh, very welcoming to all filmmakers. And it, it's, uh, it's an amazing festival, so I, I highly encourage everyone to go out. And if you, if you have something, submit there. Go out, enjoy it, and, and spend some time with some great indie filmmakers. They're uh, they're a very cool bunch out there. Well, you ha- you've ended up with quite you had quite a good experience on the festival circuit, though. I mean, you start with a win at Laughlin when you won the humanitarian award. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been fantastic. Um, I mean, for something that's like sort of off the beaten path, something you know. A little dark, like a uh, neurodegenerative brain disease, uh, to to have so many people out there, uh, you know, welcome us and 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 learn. That's the greatest thing. I mean, you know, you you look at how much all this is coming to the forefront now, and just the mainstream news. Um, you got 
Robin Williams coming out that, uh, you know, he was suffering from Lewy body dementia, mm -hmm. which is another thing that's very similar. It's, you know, it's a less progressive uh, brain disease, but, you know, it kind of works in the same way as, as CJD does, mm -hmm. you know, and it's all ties back to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS. And, you know, you had uh, two uh, Oscar winning performances last year for, uh, portrayal of Alzheimer's and, and ALS. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's good that everything is getting out there and, and, you know, everyone's learning more and more about this stuff. Well, for my audience, because you and I talked about uh, One in a Million on another show when you were just after the film was done, um, but this is the first time that you're on Behind the Lens to talk about the film. So for, my, for our Behind the Lens listeners, Give us a background of One in a Million and what sure. and how it started since I've been on the journey with you since the very beginning. Yeah, um, it, it started out with um, my mom becoming sick in, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And I decided to grab a camera and, and sort of record what was going on because we were trying to figure out exactly what was happening with her. Um, what it turned out to be is this this uh, horrible brain disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is sort of like if you took um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and, and combine them and sped it up, um, or throw an ALS or Lewy body dementia, any of those. And um, once I started recording her, we we found out that it was actually hereditary, and we knew that my my grandfather had died from it, so started putting the pieces together of, oh my gosh, this is, this is serious. This is serious for my family. And there's not a lot of information out there. So I decided to sort of document my own journey in, in learning about it and to figure out, you know, what were the possibilities of myself inheriting it or my brother or any other family members, which turns out it's a, it's a um, dominant gene this mutation and it gives you a 50 50 chance if one of your parents have it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went through and, and did, uh, did a lot of interviewing different doctors, the CDC, um, researchers, and, and really got to, to learn a lot about it. And now that I've put it out there, there's, um, a lot more community, uh, for the CJD community and on Facebook and social media. And it's really turned out to help a lot of people in, in learning because, again, there isn't a lot of information out there. So I became a, you know, center point of, of helping people learn and, and go through the process. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I've seen the doc quite a few times. And something that you do that a lot of filmmakers, when they start tackling documentaries, especially ones that have a health aspect, a medical aspect, a science aspect. They either don't have enough medical evidence, scientific evidence, or it's all or they can't get it. They don't know how to get it. That's something that you really you found that sweet spot of not only in your editing but in the content that you obtained and gaining access to all these doctors. Was that challenging? Did you have any hurdles to get over? in order to reach out to these medical authorities and professionals? Well, it was surprisingly 
easy. The, there was a first, you know, guarded front because obviously if you're dealing with uh, any medical professional or, a, you know, a government, you know, uh, like the CDC, that, that sort of thing, they have to make sure that you're not going to come out and, and bash and, you know, say bad things or make them look bad. And once everybody realized what my intentions were, it became really easy and, and people were, were opening up and, and offering me access that, that was incredible. I, I, I guess a little bit my my being naive is that, I, you know, being a first-time filmmaker, I thought, oh, you know, I'll get access, it won't be a problem. Um, even with all, all my, you know, TV and, and other film experience, you know, you, if you go through the channels, you should be able to get that access. But I guess, you know, it was the, the, that first front, the PR front that you have to get through uh, was the hard part. Once people realized and, and they sat down with me, everybody was very, very open and excited. And, and, you know, I think if they're part of that community, they know that the information needs to get out there. So mm. it made it pretty easy. And, and I was very lucky to get the kind of access that I did. And, you know, I, what kind of learning curve did you find? Because that, as you know, I, as you said, as I've said, you have a great history in reality TV producing, you've done editing, what was that learning curve like for you to not only be writing, directing, producing, and editing a documentary, but a documentary about a subject that is so personal and close to your heart? Well, I, I think all the experience that I've gained in, in doing it, especially professionally, helped. Um, you know, I, I've taken years to learn how to craft a story and tell it, and then to be able to be freed up and not have other people, you know, over my head kind of directing in a certain way that I could, I could just sort of tell the story. And I think that's, what's great about being able to do documentary stuff is you don't have to cater to a, you know, advertisers and, and, and network and things like that. <laughs> if you can do it on your own, you have a, a lot more freedom and that's that was what was cool about it, and that's why I want to continue and pursue it, you know. And, and you know, I love I love doing good quality. I know that's hard to say quality reality, but <laughs> positive things that are not, you know, champagne being thrown in people's faces and stuff. And you get to tell people's real stories and how they live their lives, and in a positive way, you know, to to be able to do that in a documentary form is is just as rewarding if not more so mm-hmm. I mean, not not as rewarding financially but <laughs> certainly rewarding <laughs> professionally so yes th- that is something that we can't stress enough to indie filmmakers especially when you're embarking on documentaries like one in a million um you don't go into this for financial recompense <laughs> no if, that, if that's your goal then <laughs> do something else for sure Okay, you actually don't go into reality TV for that either, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not really, no. Do you but see... some of us can get through and, and, and do pretty decent. You know, I've, I've been lucky, and, you know, like like you mentioned, you know, Wahlburgers has been nominated for an Emmy twice in a row. I also put Alaska The Last Frontier out there. It's been nominated twice in a row. So, you know, the great thing is that, that now the sort of the establishment has is, is recognized that there are different genres of reality and it's not all you know 
fighting back and forth and bickering and, and making stars out of people that shouldn't be. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes you can do good stuff and tell good stories. Well, and I think that's something that you really bring to the table uh, with Wahlburgers, um, because there is a story there, and I, you know, and that is that's continual. It's not just people sitting on a couch. It's not Real Housewives sitting there fighting. It's not the Kardashians. You know, how much makeup can we put on our faces, and how many different outfits can we wear on a show? You actually, Wahlburgers actually tells stories and chapters, and I can't wait to see what you guys do. You know. With Mark's meeting with the Pope in Philly. Well, if, if you know the Wahlberg story, they've they really did come from nothing and built themselves up and and have done a great job of of sort of maintaining integrity and not be you know just stars for stars' sake or anything. They do a lot of giving back and you know try to. Try to lead by example. They're not perfect, you know, and they'll they'll be the first ones to say it. And you know, they've had their their run-ins early in life, but they've turned themselves around and they they sort of prove that you can do that and you can do it as a family and to be able to come back together like they have and include everybody. It's you know, there's nine kids that that are all together and it's uh it's it's nice and refreshing and and to have two mega stars come out of the same family like that is incredible mm-hmm. you know and, and to not have had the, the benefits that other people may have had you know they they really made something out of nothing and i find it interesting that you you know, you talk about it being you know the Wahlberg family and the family comes together and that's very similar to what you have done with your doc with one in a million it is for the cjd family but not just the cjd family but for your family yeah, well, it, it it started being my family, and then you then you realize that that something like this this you know uh, it's just a horrible way to go. And if you lose somebody to a disease like this, it creates a bond that you know you, it's unspoken, but you can feel it. And you don't even have to meet these people; you can just interact on on Facebook and things, and and know. And you know, I I had people that were there for me when I was going through it and now I'm there for other people and you know I still get messages asking me about this or that and constantly you know people either needing to see the documentary or thanking me for doing it so you know the goal right now is to get it out there to a more mass audience and you know get it so that even more people know mm-hmm. if they're not affected or if they have you know the other sort of similar diseases and, and understanding what's what's going on and, and how you deal with it and then just letting people know that it exists you know i think you know louis body is one thing that that you know if it weren't for robin williams i don't think a lot of people would know about it mm-hmm. you know alzheimer's is, is out there but louis body is a lot affects a lot of people and, and mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily know about it you know parkinson's is uh, michael j fox so it's uh you know we there is no face to put to CJD right now and, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a shame but you know we you know you know, we don't really want to have to put a face to it yeah. like to have it go away but um, that's that's not happening there's no treatment no cure right now so we can do everything we can just to get awareness out there and, and you know so people know that it exists and it's this horrible thing and if we work towards research and cure it can help with so many of these brain diseases 
Now, if, how can people see the documentary if they want to see it? Will you be, you know, thinking of maybe doing some self-distribution via iTunes or Netflix or Hulu? Even Vimeo now you can, you can self-distribute on and, you know, people can, you know, pay to see the doc. Are those possibilities for what will happen in the future? Yeah, right now, um, kind of um, working with with my team, I guess you could say, um, of possibly iTunes, possibly Netflix, um, working with some other independent um, distribution ideas and figuring out what what could be next and and how we go about that. You know, unfortunately, it's not as easy as just saying, hey, Netflix, put my doc on there. You know, you still need a, a... a little bit more than that, but um, you know, we're we're trying. I want to get it out there. Um, you know, if people contact me and they're going through the disease or you know have a loved one or whatever, I, I make it available to anybody that that needs to see it. And mm-hmm. now I want to get it out there to other people that you know want to see it and or didn't know they want to see it and just put it in front of their faces. So how can people reach you, Trev, so that if they want to talk to you about the disease or, or see the doc? Uh, the easiest way is, is the, the doc has a Facebook page. It's CJD Documentary. And so if you do, you know, search that on Facebook, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And you can message me there. Um, there's also there's links and a lot of information. and It's a great little community to talk about it, and that, that can then – if you are affected, you can find the other groups, you know, um, that are on Facebook. But if you literally search CJD documentary mm-hmm. in Google, you should be able to find it. So, Terrific. Um, that, that it's, it's good because it's easy to find me. It's bad because there isn't more stuff out there. Well, the good thing is you've put together a documentary that's very comprehensive. It is very informative. And while there may not be a plethora of other things out there or copious amounts of information, I think the most concise and, co- and coherent is all in one spot, and that's in your doc. Well, I appreciate that. And you know that if, if, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you. I would tell yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Trev, thank you so, so much for joining me today. And well, I know. Thank you for having me, and uh, you know, congrats on, on doing this and, and blazing a new trail. I couldn't do it without guys like you, and you know that, and you know I mean that. I appreciate it, but you're you're doing a great job. So. Well, thank you. I will see you later in the week, my friend. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Trev. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. And that was Trevor Byrold uh, talking about the One in a Million, a CJD documentary. Uh, you can go to Facebook and you can look up CJD documentary. You can reach out to Trevor. Um, any distributors out there, I heartily, heartily recommend this. This is a perfect documentary for something like HBO Films. Uh, KCT is expanded. Um, it, the doc needs to find a home somewhere because it is very important to a lot of people and it's very well done so right now some something else that's something else is very well done is this little film called superior as i like to say superior is superior is this my friend ed benda yes it is (laughs) 
Hello, Ed. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. Hi, Debbie. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. I am so thrilled to have you, and I am just so thrilled with the journey that you and Superior have gone on, and essentially the festival journey ends tonight. True? Just about. We actually uh, we got a special invitation to be the opening night film at a regional festival here in Michigan this Friday. So that'll be kind of uh, a bonus for this tour. But yeah, tonight tonight is a very big night being in my hometown. I was going to say, because this Superior is all about hometown, family, friendships, those wistful, poignant moments of youth and moving on. That, absolutely, and uh, that, that makes tonight extra special. Uh, all right. For my audience, for our behind-the-lens audience, tell, tell us about Superior. And we don't have to talk about the wonderful Paul Stanko. You know, we don't have to do that. <laughs> oh, well, I, 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 I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the wonderful <laughs> Paul Stanko and Dr. Robinson. But, I, uh, yeah, Superior, it's a, it's a story about two best friends in the summer of 1969 with very different futures ahead of them, one of them on his way to Michigan Tech University and one of them's future is a little more uncertain. And at the time, the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War draft were very real parts of, of the world they lived in. And before they go their separate ways, having just graduated from high school, they decide to go on one final adventure together, a 1,300-mile bike ride around the massive and, and relentless Lake Superior. <laughs> well, and this story actually has a wonderful backstory that comes through your uncle yeah that's that's the truth in uh in 1971 my uncle carl and his cousin dudza uh woke up one day in the middle of summer having just graduated from high school and kind of looked at each other and said well what do you want to do today and i don't know what do you want to do today do you want to go on a 1300 mile bike ride without any planning sure sounds like a great plan and that's exactly what they did and <laughs> With just the change in their pocket and the shirts on their back, they took off on these janky two-speed Schwinn bicycles uh, on this epic journey. And I first heard this story a few years ago uh, over a Thanksgiving dinner, and I was so fascinated, and I remain fascinated by the time and the place and the sense of adventure uh, where young adults could do that, when that was something people did. and. Mm -hmm. That became the backbone uh, for our film. Well, and you, you mentioned those two janky old Schwinn bicycles. Are not those same two janky old Schwinn bicycles appearing in this film? That, that's the absolute truth. Uh, yeah, they, the actual bikes they rode in 1971, they, uh, they both still had in their respective garages. And with, a, with a little TLC, we were able to get them running and... Uh, those are the actual bikes that we used to film Superior last summer, more than 40 years later. Uh, and, a and actually a very cool thing is uh, we've been on this tour and we've been able to bring the bikes to all of the theaters where we've been showing the film. Uh, and it's, it just adds to the mystique when, when you really see these things and you feel how heavy, <laughs> how horrible they are for long-distance bike riding. Mm -hmm. and, and yet... What, what they've accomplished. Well, I know the minute I, I started watching the film, I was immediately taken back 
to my childhood in the 60s and spending time at the Jersey Shore down in the Pine Barrens and riding bikes up on the dirt mounds and through the trees. And, I mean, you cannot help but get this winsome, nostalgic feeling when you watch this film, and it's a beautiful feeling. Well, thank thank you so much, and that uh, that means a lot. Being able to kind of capture that that time period, and uh, it, it was just a tremendous privilege to be able to tell this story. Well, when you decided you were going to tell this story, and you get Paul Stanko and Thatcher Robinson to come in, and was the first thing they said is we're not really going to have to bike thirteen hundred miles, are we? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was their their first questions are we are we actually going to have to go on this bike ride? Uh, what their first question should have been uh, are, are how short are the shorts going to be? Uh, and uh, and then they may they may have made a different decision as far as their involvement, but uh, <laughs> they they're so incredibly talented, and I I mean I I pinch myself every time you know I I sit in the theater every time the movie plays. I love sitting with the audience and and falling in love all over again with with the film and and paul and thatcher in an 84 minute movie uh they're on screen for 84 minutes yeah so they 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 carry the film and it's it's such a privilege to have worked with them and to continue to work with them and enjoy the work they did on superior and you see this beautiful their be- the beautiful journey of the characters of derek and charlie you know you see the growth on screen, but nothing is ever forced. It's very effortless. It's very easy. There's humor interjected. It is just like s- spending a summer vacation with your best friend on a lake somewhere. And that and that's the truth. And that I think stems so heavily from you know there's the the story I wrote and in in what we set out to film and and while that certainly is what we accomplished, um, the way we filmed the movie was there was a team of our two lead actors, Paul and Thatcher, and then there were nine of us. Um, I, sh- I should also mention all 11 of us are USC alumni of Los Angeles. And the 11 of us loaded up into three sedans and a pickup truck, and we drove 3,600 miles to Calumet, Michigan, one of the most remote towns there, <laughs> there really is. Uh, and the 11 of us lived in a tiny little cabin on Lake Superior for a month, to film this movie, and I think that culture in uh, the way we live just to make the film happen uh, certainly helped motivate and elevate the actual story we were telling. Now, I have to ask you, and I know I didn't ask any of you this when we first met earlier this year, um, this all happened before you guys were ever born. As you, yeah. as you are filming Superior... And you are immersing yourselves in this experience. Did you feel like, did you feel you were really back in 1969, 1970 in this idyllic summer space? I, I think, uh, I, I don't know if it was necessarily feeling of that time period simply because I, I don't have a personal, you know, I personally didn't live then. But what I did feel, and maybe this is what you're describing, is a, a wonderful disconnect from the world mm-hmm. around me uh, is, you know, we were there living together to make this film. And, you know, I, I wasn't checking emails every day and I wasn't worried about uh, 
phone calls or you know what or really any responsibility outside of this particular adventure we were on and uh i think that that's exactly exactly kind of that idyllic world we got to live in mm-hmm. uh it it was incredible and so yeah in, in that respect there was nostalgia in and of itself uh because of what what we were creating and, and where we live mm-hmm so now, after the adventure of making this film, you have been on this whirlwind adventure of the festival <laughs> circuit. Now, for yeah. fi- filmmakers that have never experienced the festival circuit, how would you describe that? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> well, it's it's exhausting in in really the best way possible. You have to check your time zones constantly and try to remember which city you're in and and all of that and. We had the good fortune to have our world premiere at the Dances with Films Festival uh, at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, which is, I mean, a pretty cool thing to say <laughs> for my debut feature film that <laughs> we premiered at the one and only Grauman's Chinese Theater. Uh, and, and we've since kind of been, we've been at some other major festivals. We were at the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis. We also had the good fortune to play at the Orlando Film Festival down in Florida. So even right there, we're already dotting the map of the United States. Mm-hmm. And and I am, personally, I'm from Michigan, and this film was made in Michigan, and it's uh, a very kind of mid, Midwest-centric story and its sensibility and, of course, where it, where it takes place. And, um, and so we actually put together uh, a special tour, uh, the Superior Roadshow, uh, where we have independent theaters, colleges, and some festivals throughout Michigan uh, where we've been on tour with this festival. So we took it to six small towns in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and and now we're in five towns here in in Lower Michigan. And and to just see the the response and the pride that Michigan audiences are taking in in the film that showcases their home state has been an incredible experience in and of itself but by the time i finally get back on a plane to los angeles uh yeah i will have been living out of a suitcase for about 40 days which is uh which gets a little ripe as time goes by and of course i i think i think it's we'll just be glad paul's not traveling with you you know so (laughs) although that would have been too much of a pleasure, although I don't know if my gut could take that much laughter. Yeah, that see, that's that's the problem. You get near Paul Stanko, and you cannot help but laugh. He, <laughs> he keeps you in stitches. But now I think it's very important that we that we mention here that you just won another award for the film last night in East Lansing. That, that's right. Yeah, we uh, Saturday night, late Saturday night, we uh, we were awarded the best feature film at the East Lansing Film Festival, uh, which is is an incredible uh, honor. It, uh, of course, I, I I say the obligatory, you know, we don't make these movies to win awards, but it's still fun to win them. Uh, how, <laughs> so how many it, have you racked up it, on this on this festival tour? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really, it, it's been great, and we uh, were nominated for Best Picture down in the Orlando Film Festival, and we won an audience award at the Sioux Film Festival, and, uh, and, and what I, I think is the biggest award uh, of them all is just the uh, numbers of uh, attendees we've had at these screenings all over Michigan. Uh, we've consistently been selling out all these theaters, which far exceeds 
any expectation I could have had. And uh, it's I just I'm, I pinch myself every day to to be on this journey with this film. Well, now for your showing tonight at the Maple Theater in Bloomfield, are there any seats left or are you sold out for that, too? <laughs> Well, we uh, we originally we we were just playing in one theater, the kind of main auditorium at the Maple Theater, and uh, as of a, about three days ago, it completely sold out. And fortunately, the Maple Theater is an awesome independent theater here in, in Metro Detroit, and uh, they were willing to open up a second auditorium so we could have another screening uh, at somewhat simultaneous. Uh, oh, wow. And that one sold out within a few hours. Uh, so they were even more gracious in letting us, uh, open up a third screening. Oh uh, and, and I actually think that one maybe, if not already sold out, it's probably getting very close, uh, which I, to, to sell out the first theater, uh, blew my mind, mm. uh, and to have done it three days in advance and, and to now have, uh, what could potentially be three auditoriums. Uh, three theaters full of people oh. that just want to see the film and <laughs> is simultaneously incredibly exciting, but, you know, very nerve wracking. <laughs> you know, that I guess at the end of the day, we want people to see the film, but that's uh, feel, feeling the pressure a bit. I hope it, I hope it meets and uh, or exceeds everyone's expectations. Well, I think anybody who sees it is going to fall in love with it just as I did. I mean, it is just, you should be very proud of what you've done, Ed. But, you know, I have, I have to say here for the listeners out there and the viewers later in the week when they see the video of today's show, um, it, this does not happen at film festivals or in communities. The last time I saw theaters multi-booking was back at L.A. Film Festival when Transformers came out. And... <laughs> Every theater in Westwood that was open at the time participated in this, and they did a stream to all, to all the theaters at the same time so everybody could see Transformers, and every theater was sold out. And that was in the days of you're paying for tickets for festivals. It's not like AFI now where you don't pay for tickets or LAFF where you don't pay, or there are times you don't pay for tickets. Everybody was buying these tickets, and every yeah. theater was sold out. But in my 27 years... Your this is the only other time I've seen something like this happen. So this is just amazing, Ed. This is amazing. Uh, well, I'm no Michael Bay, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's still pretty pretty darn cool, and I really I'm so I'm I'm so humbled by it all, and and it's such a wonderful surprise, and I really uh, I can't wait to be there this evening and to get to see and meet all these people and and, uh, and chat with them and. Uh, I make it a, a point. I love doing Q and A's after the film, uh, and I'll be at all three screenings tonight. <laughs> oh my God! Doing, doing Q and A's at all of them, and I and I love it. I mean, it um, film making a movie can be for so long a very uh, lonely, or you know, maybe it's you and the editor, or you and a few other people. You know, there are long stretches of filmmaking that are spent spent uh, somewhat uh, solitarily and. Mm -hmm. uh, and to now be able to spend a night with hundreds of people who uh, want to see our work is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a dream come true. It's truly incredible. 
Well, Ed, I I can't. I wish you all the best. You are you definitely will be staying in touch with me, so I know where the film is going and what you're doing next. And you better be working on something else. I we're well, one step at a time. I think we're <laughs> we're trying to take Superior as as far as it can go. But the the team behind Superior is a team I look forward to working with more and more. And we certainly uh, hope to have many more projects in our future. Well. And you know I'll be there for every single one to help back you. <laughs> thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate oh, that. Ed, thank you. And have fun tonight with your triple header. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll see if I still have a voice tomorrow. I'm glad you got a hold of me today. Uh, so am I. <laughs> Enjoy it, Ed. Enjoy it. And thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was filmmaker Ed Benda talking about his film superior. So if you are in the suburban Detroit area, if you are near Bloomfield, check at the Maple Theater, see if there are tickets available. I can't encourage you enough. You will fall in love with this film. And I'm getting some kind of music cue here. Somebody wants me to take a commercial, I think. So we'll take a break and I'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeblore.com, and you're listening to us on AdrenalineRadio.com. Uh, and of course, for those of you that know, and for those of you that don't know, uh, our show it becomes a podcast on iTunes, which, is, which should be up sometime tomorrow. It's also available here on AdrenalineRadio.com as a podcast. You can find it on my website and numerous other places. Later in the week, we do a three-camera shoot with our wonderful DP, Jordan Johnson, uh, who likes playing with the GoPro, and I never know where that lens is going to be pointed. Uh, so you'll be able to to actually watch the video of the show and you'll see movie stills inserted um, as our guests speak so that you get a sense of what it is we're talking about in terms of visual context. So we're going to jump around a little bit here because we're running out of time. We're going to go back to Trumbo and instead of hearing more from John McNamara, we're going to hear from director Jay Roach, starting with his introduction to Dalton Trumbo and the Hollywood Ten. I knew a little bit about it because my teacher and film school, one of them was Edward Dimitrik, who was mm -hmm. the tenth of the ten, if you will, the only non-writer. He was the director member of the ten. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew a little bit about it, but I wish I'd read Cook's book. Uh, and the new, there's a new biography called, uh, by Larry Sepler, which is also amazing. Yeah, I haven't read that used, one. And he I used a lot of Trumbo, uh, a lot of Cook's book, and then updated it. He's, it's actually excellent. It's co-written by. By uh, Chris Trumbo as well. Okay. Um, so it's uh, it's really authentic. And so, and the big part of Trumbo is because this took place in the golden age of Hollywood in the in the forties, the fifties, the sixties. All the actors, the talent, everybody was larger than life. All the personas were larger than life. And as you as you will see when you see the film, when you have Brian Cranston playing Dalton Trumbo, you have Diane Lane playing Cleo. Trumbo. You have Michael Stolberg playing Edward G. Robinson. John Goodman as Frank King. Uh, you have an um, L. Fanning as 
uh, Dalton Trumbo's eldest daughter, Nikki. Um, you have Alan Tudyk as his friend, Ian McClellan Hunter, who got the sc- on-screen credit as writing Roman Holiday. Uh, and then, of course, the incomparable Helen Mirren as Hedda Hopper. David James Elliott populates the film as John Wayne. Uh, then we have Dean, uh, Dean O'Gorman pl- embodies the very essence of a young Kirk Douglas. James Dumont plays J. Purnell Thomas. Got to give a shout out. This is probably the most dynamic performance of James Dumont's career. And then Christian Burkle comes in with an indelible Otto Preminger. All of these figures are important in Hollywood history, in the history of the American political climate, and the actors who are portraying them are equally important in cinema today. So I had to ask Jay about creating the larger-than-life personas without things turning into a caricature. But what I love, what you and and your cinematographer, Jim Deneau, did is you were dutching almost every shot with David and Helen that really helped bring out the grandeur and the larger-than-life essence of John Wayne. It was beautiful. Thank you. Well, you know, I I thought, yes, shooting up at, especially up at her, to give her the, the, the power that that she had, you know, she was, she had 32 million readers and she wasn't an extremist at those, in those days. She was tapped into a popular uh, sentiment. Something like 60% of Americans Mm -hmm. thought we were already in World War III in 1950. So you didn't get 32 million readers being some kind of uh, wingnut, you know, Mm -hmm. as one would call someone like that today, possibly. You got it by... Uh, understanding what the zeitgeist was worried about. She she wrote gossip, which she knew that would get her popular. She wore goofy hats that looked like centerpieces in a <laughs> dinner party. But she knew her public, and she knew what they cared about. And I love the way she says that, you know, I, those boys in Korea, who cares about these movie stars and their, and, these, and their careers? These are boys, these men are sacrificing everything to die in Korea, get wounded in Korea, fight in Korea. You know, she would trade one guy in Hollywood for one of those guys in a second. And that was a real sentiment, you know. So I tried not to have her be a uh, kind of impersonation or a cartoon. And that's why you cast Helen Mirren, because she can make anything even more layered than than it might have been otherwise. And she is just, Helen's brilliant. I know. And I I, I was joking about it, but I love that she knows how to wear hats. (laughs) And anyone that knows the history of Hedda Hopper or have seen anything about the film. Uh, I think there are 150 different hats that were made for the film. I don't know how many were used. Um, But in coming weeks, you'll also hear excerpts of my exclusive with our costume designer on Trumbo, uh, Daniel Orlandi. But right now, let's hear some more from Jay about the camera and the editing that helped create the larger-than-life look of Trumbo. The camera's also more... Even more dynamic, the the, rank, the dynamic range of the film mm-hmm. adjusts to the, the predicament that he's in. Life is becoming harder to control. He was a very controlled guy, Trump, mm-hmm. a disciplined guy. He would he worked insane hours, but as he you know was doing so many scripts, not just his own, he was vouching for other people. So he would volunteer to rewrite other people's mm-hmm. scripts for no additional money for himself, just to help keep the black market going. So he wasn't sleeping. He was taking uppers to stay up and get up and, and he was taking, uh, you know, drinking a lot and, and taking barbiturates to go to sleep. I mean, the poor guy was unraveling in a yeah. way. And so the, 
the camera work. I love the some of my favorite stuff is during that scene with Louis C.K. and him in the study fighting over mm-hmm. over uh, Trumbo's hypocrisies. You know, yeah. but he's getting busted by a close friend who's more pure mm-hmm. to the ideals, and uh, it's all it's all real. And also, Arlen Hurd is getting sicker, so the the camera is completely unhinged. It's it's and it's very mm-hmm. backlight. So every bit of every bit of dynamic range we could bring in. That's what's great about working with Jim. He comes at it from story first, mm-hmm. you know, not make a pretty make a pretty picture, which is always mm-hmm. tempting in period films to just make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. And he's the opposite. He just wants the story to... It has to look great, and I really think it does, but it has to serve the story first. It, and you really have to hit those emotional beats yeah. with this yeah. film. And, again, what you guys choose to... You recreate some of the newsreels from yeah. some of the testimony, and then... You meld, you meld the original. I have to credit my editor, Alan Baumgarten, who's also done a lot of films with me, in helping um, blur the lines between mm-hmm. the archival footage and the uh, the real life stuff. To eat. we kind of boosted the quality of some of the archival stuff and mm-hmm. degraded our stuff, and then found it a way to meld it. And then we make that very specific transition out of the archival mm-hmm. HUAC hearing footage, black and white. You spread the frame out to the and right and left. Goes into color. Make the sound go into the surround sound, and I and I go to color. And so, the audience, I hope, is saying, "Oh, right, this is an interpretation of that of that world." Mm-hmm. That's it's not a documentary. Those are kind of documentary type shots. Right. But this is a story about history. It's not history, you know. And that's I think that's really important. It's it's an interpretation. There's composite characters. They're actors. They're not the real people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's compressed to two hours. It's not 13 years. So. Someone asked me how much of this film is not true. I said all of it. Realized they're actors, right? And it's a (laughs) because that whole thing of the accuracy police it so misses the point of what's going on. These are authentic interpretations of these characters. This Mm -hmm. this film gets the essence of who they are. And I don't think we have enough time to play any more of my interview with Jay Roach. However, you will be able to hear all of. All of the cli- all of the experts excerpts and my interview with John McNamara, with Jay Roach, and many others be- behind the lens and below the lines on Trumbo. Um, go to MovieSharkDeBlore.com later this week, and also uh, YouTube uh, Elias Entertainment Movie Shark Deblore, and you can see the videos there. So I think that we're just about out of time for today. Um, remember, every Monday, eleven to twelve. East uh, Pacific Time, uh, 2 p.m. to 3 Eastern Time, AdrenalineRadio.com, also on AdviceRadio.com. Find us on iTunes, find us on YouTube, find us on my website, and some of these other illegally downloaded places that we're discovering are streaming the show. Um, But we're around. Check us out. That's it for today. We'll be back next week.